So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello there, and uh, welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we'll talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Brake and Nathan Apodaca. Clinton, Aaron, great to be with you. Good to be back, thank you. Great to have you guys with us. We're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, last week when we ended our broadcast, I actually forgot to mention that I was doing a uh, live interview with Elijah Thompson, and that went live yesterday as of uh, the day that we're recording. This will go live on Sunday, so it'll be almost a week ago. So you can catch that interview live on our website, and you can also find the link for that on our Facebook page. And I'll take the opportunity now to just reiterate about the Facebook page. It's uh, Pro-Life Thinking on Facebook. If you haven't liked us there, if you've come across us, uh, just browsing along the uh, the podcasts on Blog Talk Radio, or if you heard about us from somebody else, then by all means, go like us there on Facebook, and you can find us on Twitter, too, at Pro-Life Thinking. Now, today we're going to be talking about the objections to the scientific case for, for the pro-life position. Last week, we talked about the science itself, how we know that the, that the unborn organisms are living whole, independent human organisms. And and today we're going to talk about some of the objections to that science. Now, it's not scientifically controversial that human life begins a fertilization, but unfortunately, as you do talk to, uh, to abortion choice advocates, they may not be very knowledgeable about the science of embryology. And so you might actually have to justify to them that the weight of the scientific evidence rests on the pro-life position that human life begins a fertilization. So today we're going to tackle some of those objections from people who just are not familiar with, with that, and they'll sometimes raise these objections. So we're going to first start off talking a little bit about the difference between philosophy and empirical research and evidence, and then we'll, we'll get to the objections. Now, I've reiterated a couple of times on this podcast so far that we need to keep the philosophical and the scientific questions separate. And that's because science and philosophy answer different questions. When we talk about science, we're talking about empirical research and evidence, things that you can investigate through the, uh, through the five senses, things you can, you can actually physically test in a lab, those kinds of things. And philosophy deals with non-material things. We, we usually reason philosophically by engaging our mind, and our mind, of course, is a, is a non-material or an immaterial thing. And so scientific knowledge then is obtained through empirical research and evidence. We know that human life begins at fertilization because scientists have observed the sperm and the egg fusion and have investigated what happens when those two cells fuse. Now the question of personhood 
is a philosophical question. No amount of scientific investigation can tell you what personhood actually is. That takes philosophical reflection. Now, this leads some people to reject philosophy and only accept science as knowledge, but that is foolish to do. Philosophy, for example, is more fundamental than science. In order to do science well, you have to have the right philosophical framework from which to interpret the scientific evidence. In fact, a hundred years ago and, and earlier, the scientists were the philosophers and theologians. And so science itself was actually, used, actually used to be known as, as natural philosophy. Uh, additionally, philosophy has given us logic, so in order to do science well, you first have to learn how to think well. Philosophy can tell us what a person is, then once you determine philosophically what a person is, science can then tell us who counts as a person. Yeah, great point, Clinton. Just something else to mention for the listening audience, as I spoke about on last week's episode, any objection that is made to the scientific arguments that pro-lifers are presenting, that objection must be made using the disciplines relevant to the study of human reproduction in a biological, not a sociological sense. So I say in a biological sense, talking about what happens at the cellular system, organ, and anatomy levels. In a sociological sense, it would be, say, the study of human sexuality. So any objection that is made to the scientific case that is being presented by pro-lifers must be made using empirical research from the study of embryology and fetology. And also, the burden of proof is going to be on the pro-choice advocate who disputes the science. They're going to have to demonstrate empirically that there is no biological organism known as a human being present at any stage during pregnancy and not present in any way, shape, or form during the time periods that abortions are happening. Basically, if you dispute the science that is being presented, and this is what we're going to talk about today when we talk about the objections to the scientific case, is you would have to demonstrate from the moment of conception all the way up until the moment of birth or even during the birth process that there is no biological entity known as a human organism. And the task is simply to explain that the entity that is being killed through abortion or embryonic stem cell research does not fit the qualification of human organism. And this should be a fairly easy task to accomplish, but no sophisticated pro-choice argument has ever accomplished this. And we talked about that last week, how the most sophisticated pro-choice arguments will fully agree with us on the science, like David Boonin, Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, they agree with us on the science, they disagree with us on the philosophy of what it means to be a person. So we're going to talk about that later. But today we'll just be talking about the objections to science. Right. And so basically, this is not going to be an exhaustive list of objections to the science. There are probably others that we could cover and we may decide to cover it in the future if we if we revisit this particular topic. So basically how, how it's going to go is that uh, Nathan, Aaron, and I are each going to just take an individual objection and then we're going to respond to it. The first objection that I'm going to look at is really kind of three objections. You hear this from from different people, but the the general response to these kinds of objections are pretty similar. And so the objection goes like this. An acorn is not an oak tree. A blueprint is not a house, an iron ingot is not a car, and an egg is not a chicken. These objections 
confuse the concepts of active potential with passive potential. A tree sapling is a potential mature tree, and it is also a potential house, but not in the same sense. An active potential is a potential something has within itself to actualize, and a passive potential is a potential that something has when it is acted upon from the outside. A match has the potential to produce fire, and it has that potential actively. If you strike the match, it will catch fire. A wood log also has the potential to produce fire, but it has that potential passively. It must be brought into contact with something that is on fire in order for it to produce fire, because while it can catch fire, it cannot produce fire on its own. So an active potential is identity preserving, while a passive potential can be identity altering. An acorn is a young oak, an oak in the seed stage of development. An acorn contains an oak embryo, one that needs time to develop into maturity, but it is the same individual as the mature oak tree will become because it has the active potential to develop into a mature oak. An acorn will never grow into a maple, a mouse, or a man. It will always result in an adult oak tree unless prevented from doing so. Now this means that the proper analogy is acorn is to oak tree as embryo is to adult, not as embryo is to human, because the mature oak is just the acorn at a later stage in development, just as the adult is an embryo at a later stage in development. All this objection implies is that the unborn is not an adult, but no one denies that anyway. Now similarly, an iron ingot is not a car because the car must be constructed by an outside builder. The heap of metal that, it, that the car is constructed from will not become a car on its own, so in no sense is a pile of metal a car. It won't become a car until it is constructed. The sperm and the ovum are more like the iron ingot. Left alone, they will not produce a human being. They have the passive potential to become a human being, but once they are brought together, they both cease to exist and a new human being comes into existence, and this new human being has the active potential potential to develop himself along the path of human development. Now, a blueprint is not a house because it will not develop into a house, nor will it be constructed into a house. DNA is more like a blueprint because the DNA must be read in order for us to continue developing. The DNA is not the human, just as the blueprint is not the house. And finally, an egg is not a chicken in the same way that a bag is not the marbles it contains inside. An egg contains a chicken embryo, it is not the chicken embryo itself. Just for the listening audience, this is going to tie into when we talk later about the philosophy and what's called the substance view of human persons. So we'll get back to this, but this is kind of an introduction to the substance view that you're the same thing at every stage of your development throughout your life. So we'll get into that later when we talk about the philosophy. Something I should also mention is that scientists themselves are not immune from making some of these missteps. You'll often hear a scientist try to talk about this, and sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll actually come out and say, you know, no one actually knows when life begins. It's not true that science has determined this question, when what they actually mean is science has not determined what a person is, which is true, because that's not within the purview of science. When a scientist, like a biologist, says science has not determined when life begins, they're speaking philosophically and conflating the two senses of the term life, which can be misleading, and it can be confusing as well. And so that's, that's another reason why it's important for pro-life people to learn the difference between the philosophy and the science and keep those two uh, those two questions separate. I threw in the objection, an iron ingot is not a car uh, during, uh, during this objection because 
uh, because I actually saw a biologist by the name of P.Z. Myers use this same kind of argument, and he, and he actually specifically said, "An iron ingot is not a car." When he was refer- when he was uh, responding to a pro-life advocate talking about how science has determined when human life begins, so see, even scientists can, um, can can make these missteps, especially if they're someone like P.Z. Myers, someone who is not a very very good critical thinker. So the next objection that I will be talking about is the so-called embryo is just a parasite objection. And I've done a lot of outreach on college campuses, whether at Cal State San Marcos, and I heard this one quite a bit, actually, when I did outreach at Miracosta Community College in Carlsbad, California. And so the objection basically goes like this. Well, the embryo is feeding off of uh, my body, off of the woman's body. That makes it a parasite. Well, this objection is incredibly bad on the face of it. It completely ignores the scientific data that is available to answer the question, is the embryo a human being or a member of the human species? And this is also just an example of pure dehumanization. Dehumanizing rhetoric is when a human being is said to be something other than a member, either biologically or morally, of the human family. And this has happened far too many times throughout human history and is nearly always accompanied by some form of injustice. So take, for example, uh, racial injustice, saying that people with darker skin were less than human or less evolved than the rest of us. It was a horrifying view, but that's an example of dehumanization. So when someone says that the embryo or the fetus is a parasite, they're dehumanizing it in order to justify killing it. And aside from that, the evidence of embryology and fetology does not support this view. So to clarify that, a parasite is a living creature of another species that attaches itself to a host of a separate species. So, for example, a tapeworm connected to a human being's intestinal tract and proceeds to, quote, feed, unquote, off of the food or body fluids of the host. So like a mosquito, for instance. So the unborn is different from this. In the embryonic and fetal stages of his or her life, it does not do this. One, the embryo is a biological human being, just like the mother, simply at an immature stage of his or her development. Along with that, the mother's body is specifically designed for the sole purpose of carrying a child prior to birth and will change during pregnancy and even before pregnancy to support that role. So, for example, the woman's uterine lining will become more acceptable for the implantation of an embryo during her menstrual cycle and her immune system will allow the embryo to implant on the uterine wall. The umbilical cord also contains a filter that transfers nutrients through molecular filters, a little bit of redundancy there, but uh, it will transport through osmosis the nutrients necessary for the child's development from the mother's bloodstream to the child's bloodstream so that the two's bloodstreams will not mix. Along with these features, a woman's body will change in ways to help deliver her child and care for her child afterwards. For example, she'll be more ready to experience labor and give birth to the child. And then also, a woman's breast tissue will begin to change to help with lactation and producing breast milk. And there are some cases when there are complications to a woman's physical health during pregnancy and labor, but these are due to malfunctioning biological systems. So in the case of, say, a child that dies during birth, so stillbirth, or a woman who dies during labor and miscarriage, these are due to malfunctioning biological systems. They're not due to the design of the biological system. And they are especially not due to 
a parasitical relationship between the two. So in a parasitical relationship, the biological design of the parasite body is to directly depend on the host body. So like I said, a mosquito will depend on a human when you're out camping. That mosquito exists or its body is designed to feed off the bloodstream of the host. So if you get bit by a mosquito, that's what the mosquito is doing. So when you take a look at the characteristics of the parental and prenatal relationship and compare it to physical characteristics of that parasitical relationship like the mosquito and the person out camping, parasite feeds off the host's organism, which leads to direct physical harm to the host and up to and including death. But this is not the purpose of pregnancy at all. The purpose of pregnancy is to produce a new human being, not to harm an existing human being. Right. Okay, so another bad science objection that some pro-choice advocates use in response to the science of embryology is to point out that well, the sperm and egg are also alive and human, like the embryo. An example of this is found in Dr. Willie Parker's book, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice, where he states, an egg, unfertilized, is alive, and sperm are alive. The human beings who generated those cells, which are called gametes, are also alive. So the implication seems to be here that because sperm and egg are also human and alive, that there is nothing special or important about the embryo, or that pro-life advocates are somehow being inconsistent and anti-science by elevating the embryo to a status it doesn't deserve, all the while treating every other living cell in our body as dispensable. So there are a few problems with this objection. I want to go over those real quickly. First, sperm and egg are human in the adjectival sense. In other words, they are human sperm and a human egg. But the fact that they are human in this sense doesn't mean that they are human beings. The fact that they may share common traits does not mean they are the same thing any more than cats and dogs sharing common traits means a cat is a dog. So while we may describe sperm and egg as human sperm and human egg, they are not human in the noun sense. Neither is a human uh, neither sperm nor egg is a whole human being. So if we were to take a skin cell, for example, and implant it in the uterus, nothing would happen except the death of the skin cell every time. The embryo, on the other hand, from conception, is a distinct living and whole human being which actively guides its own internal self-development and maturation. So this brings us to the second point. The second problem with this objection is that it confuses parts with whole. The embryo is a whole human organism. Sperm and egg are merely parts of a larger human being. Sperm and egg by themselves do not have the natural, inherent capacity to develop into a whole human being. But during fertilization, the sperm and egg die in the act of conception, surrendering their constituents or parts which then come together to form a new, distinct, living, and whole human being. So killing sperm or egg does not kill a whole human being. It only kills parts of a larger human being. And the human being those parts come from is still alive. But abortion kills the whole human being, not simply a part. The unborn does not survive abortion. Abortion is not merely scraping skin cells off the unborn. It kills the unborn human being. The third problem with this objection, as Clinton mentioned earlier, it confuses active potential with passive potential. So because Clinton already had discussed this earlier, the difference between the two, active and passive potential, I won't go into that in detail, but I'll only say that when it comes to the unborn, the unborn from conception 
begins actively directing its own self-development and maturation. It has active potential. The inborn is not acted upon or constructed from the outside to further uh, develop and mature. Sperm and egg, on the other hand, only have the passive potential to, to develop into a whole human being. They are not complete in themselves and must come together to form a new entity, a new individual living human organism, which only then possesses the active potential to continue developing. So the second objection that I'm going to cover, the fourth overall, is that the embryo is just a clump of cells. And this is probably one of the most common objections we hear, especially from someone who just hasn't looked into, into the science of embryology. So what we need to find out first when we hear this objection is, what do you mean by a clump of cells? Fundamentally, can't every human being, including adults, be described as, clump of cell, as clumps of cells? And if you're saying that we're different because we have a human shape, well, first of all, even at the single cell stage, the human being looks exactly as all human beings look that early in pregnancy. Second, the embryo only looks like a ball of cells during the first week of its life. So to refer to the developing embryo or fetus as a clump of cells past the first week of its development is dishonest and misleading. Now, to refer to the unborn as a clump is reductionistic, as it attempts to reduce a living, distinct, whole organism into nothing more than a heap or a pile of cells. And as Nathan mentioned earlier, we'll talk more about uh, this idea about heaps, artifacts, and substance uh, later on when we talk about the substance view in the future. But this idea here is just simply biologically inaccurate. The unborn entity is a living organism whose parts work together for the good of the whole, actively guiding and directing its own internal development. Uh, saying that the unborn is just a clump of cells would be like referring to the Mona Lisa as just a clump of paint or a Mozart sonata as just a clump of notes. So this argument commits a metaphysical fallacy of confusing what a thing is with what a thing is made of. The early embryo may look like a simple uh, clump of cells or, or a ball of cells, but it's actually a highly organized individual in which all of its parts work together for the common good of developing the organism and keeping it alive. That's a really great point that Clinton just made in that the unborn looks exactly like a human being at particular stage development that it looks like. I've had people say, well, it doesn't look like a human being in the first three or four weeks of pregnancy. It looks like a fuzzy dinosaur. Well, <laughs> that's what all human beings at that stage of life look like. So right. that's another argument that is typically brought up is the burning research scenario. And there's some variations of this argument that have been going around online. And this one is typically used when you see a meme or a snarky comment online. There's a variation of it where I'm and I'll explain the burning research lab first, and then I'll explain the variation second, because you can answer them both the same way. So the burning research lab goes like this. You're in a research lab that is on fire. In one corner, there is a toddler, a three-year-old girl. In the other corner, there are 10 frozen human embryos in a jar. They're kept in stasis right now. You can either save the toddler or you can save the embryos, but you cannot save both. Which do you choose? Now, the variation of this, uh, I had somebody tell me this. They said, well, I'm holding a baby in my right hand and 10 frozen embryos in my left hand. And I'm going to drop both. Now, obviously, you are going to save the baby because you do believe there is a real difference. Now, let me just give a couple of answers to that. So the problem with this scenario is that it is not an answer to the empirical question. And it confuses, again, empirical science, ethical reasoning, which is a philosophical question, which we will deal with. But now we're just dealing with the empirical question. So to show the absurdity of this, when embryologists, whom we cited last week, make their arguments for the humanity of human embryos and human fetuses, 
and present their findings to research panels, they don't conduct their experiments and research by putting an unwilling test subject, which would be an adult, a human toddler and a jar of human re embryos in a research lab, set the lab on fire, and then proceed to record the choice of the test subject. That would be absurd. That's not how we determine what biological entities count as human beings. And even if researchers did conduct an experiment this way, the only question that would be resolved would be the statistical one, which is answered by the behavioral sciences, such as sociology and criminology. So the only answer we'd have to that question would be that people were more likely to choose to save the toddler. And the answer would be, well, the toddler is most likely to be saved. But that's not the question we're trying to answer when we go to the biological science. As mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, certain questions need to be answered by the appropriate discipline. Biological questions need to be answered using biological science and biological research. Behavioral questions need to be answered using behavioral science and behavioral research. And then also, let's just go back to the analogy. So let's suppose we do choose the toddler over the 10 embryos. How does this exactly mean that, one, the unborn are not human beings, and two, that we can directly kill them in abortion? It doesn't. So what does the scenario prove? If anything, it only shows that in some emergency situations, we may make choices that result in the deaths of more human beings. It certainly does not prove the pro-abortion choice position. So I think if we change the scenario just a bit, it will become a little more obvious. So for example, imagine you had to choose between saving your own child and saving five strangers. Most people are naturally going to save their own children. But what, what follows from that? What does that imply? It doesn't mean that the five strangers did not have an equal right to life or were not valuable human beings. By right to life, I mean a right to not be directly and purposely killed. And so the same is true regarding embryos. There may be other factors that come into play which cause us to choose to save the toddler over the embryo, such as the fact that the toddler will be more likely to suffer before her death from burning in the fire, and she will be more likely to survive if she is saved from such an ordeal. The embryos might not survive if we save them anyway. And then also, there's a more emotional connection that we have towards the toddler, toddler in our attempt to spare her of suffering. And then something else, an analogy that I thought was pretty interesting, as Robert George and Christopher Tolofsen point out in their book, Embryo, uh, Defense of Human Life, suppose we do end up saving the embryos. And they survive. They are later adopted by mothers. They're implanted in their mother's wombs who carry them to full term, give birth to them, and these children grow up to become adults. Then on their 20th birthdays, the former embryos, who are now young adults, they're the same kind of being they've always been, human beings, they decide to have a celebration to thank the person who rescued them, which would be you. Would you be able to accept their gratitude? And Robert George points out you would be able to, as it was them you had saved, just at an earlier stage of their development. Right. You just saved them in their most immature forms. And again, we'll discuss this idea a little bit more when we discuss the substance view. But the burning research lab or the dropping the baby or the embryos or the trolley analogy, these don't answer the biological question. They answer the philosophical question. Another objection that is raised sometimes by pro-abortion choice advocates is to say, well, look, human life doesn't begin at fertilization it actually began thousands of years ago. So some pro-choice advocates want to undermine what the science of embryology teaches us, that at conception a new, distinct, living, and whole human being comes into existence. And they do this by pointing out that life 
is really a process, and human life started thousands and thousands of years ago. Dr. Willie Parker, again, does this in his book, Life's Work, to avoid what the science of embryology tells us. He states, and I quote, life is a process, and the idea that life begins at conception is already false. Life begins long before conception with the lives that enabled those gametes to come into being. The problem with this objection is that this commits the fallacy of equivocation. Pro-abortion choice advocates are equivocating on the word life. When pro-life advocates argue that life begins at conception, they are arguing that a new, distinct, living, whole human being comes into existence at that time as an individual. They are not denying that human life, in the sense of the human race, has been around for thousands of years. Of course it has. The fact that human beings have been reproducing for thousands of years and that human life has continued in that sense does not mean we cannot know when a new individual human being comes into existence. And again, the science of embryology is very clear on that point, as we talked about last week. Right. In fact, at, uh, Ronan O'Reilly and Fabiola Mueller's embryology textbook actually makes that very same point. They say, although life is a continuous process, fertilization basically is that critical landmark when a new individual human being comes into existence. So it's not some you know trade secret that human life began thousands and thousands of years ago. That that's you know embryologists know that, but they still argue that an individual human being comes into existence at fertilization. So it's interesting that Willie Parker, who is a medical doctor, uh, would think that that refutes the idea that life begins at fertilization. So, so the last objection that I'm going to cover is the objection from twinning and recombining. Now, some people argue that because an early embryo can split off can split off into twins, it's not an individual organism at that point. So human life begins at 14 days after conception when the primitive streak develops. However, the main issue with this view is that the embryo at 15 days after conception is the same developing entity as it was before the primitive streak developed. Before the primitive streak develops, when the embryo's cells still have the potential to break off and form a new embryo, the individual cells of the embryo are still working together for the good of the original embryo. Now, after the formation of the primitive streak, these cells will start to differentiate and become the cells of each individual thing the cell will develop into, for example, uh, an internal organ. Now, Scott Klusendorf, in The Case for Life, mentions that if these were not individual cells of an organism, then each cell would individually develop into separate organisms, but they don't because they are individual parts of a larger organism. Now, one thing to note is that with cloning becoming a real possibility, all individual cells are now potential embryos. But I doubt anyone would say that because of cloning, no human adult is an individual organism. That would be absurd. It also bears mentioning that as Michael Borotovich points out in his book The Stem Cell Epistles, it's not even the case that every embryo has the potential to twin. Only some embryos have that potential, and it's usually something that is genetically passed down. If twins don't run in your family, then any embryo you produce probably does not have the potential for twinning. Now, Patrick Lee also talks about, in his book, Abortion and Unborn Human Life, that even if all embryos were potential twins, it just doesn't follow that before the twin, you don't have an individual organism. If you cut a flatworm in half, what do you get? Well, you get two flatworms. It doesn't follow that you didn't have one individual flatworm before the split just because you had two afterward. Now, when we talk about recombining, the same kind of follows in that just because 
two twins can recombine into a single organism, it doesn't follow then that you that you didn't have two or two individual organisms before the recombining. So if you have one embryo that splits into twins and then recombines, it just doesn't follow that you didn't have one, then two, then one organism. In fact, it's it's biologically it's a biological fact that you did in fact have one individual, then two individual organisms, then one individual organism again. Yeah, you know, sometimes my my nerd colors uh, fly when I talk about uh, the abortion issue because it it often gets into a lot of like science fictiony scenarios to to investigate these things. So you might think back to an episode of Star Trek Voyager in which Tuvok and Neelix were both combined into one individual because of a transporter malfunction. And there was also uh, an episode of the original series in which Captain Kirk was split into two separate individuals. And so it just doesn't follow then that uh, that before the split that there wasn't one individual person and before the recombining that you didn't have two individual people. Something else that might uh, be worth mentioning is that in some cases during human development, there's what's called a parasitical twin, where the two embryos will recombine while they were still developed and basically continue development. So you'll have a twin that's born with, say, four legs, four arms, two heads, or two sets of organs, but they're one twin. So it could also be argued that during recombining that one of the twins basically ceased to exist as an individual and became part of the larger whole that was born nine months later. Plus, also, if the twinning objection does work, it really does still rule out elective abortion because, and also the um, when people talk about, well, it's not a human being, it's a zygote, or that single cell can't be a human being. Well, abortions don't take place at the zygote or within a few days after conception. They take place weeks or even months later during pregnancy. So, the, as I mentioned earlier, the burden of proof is going to be on someone to demonstrate that at the point when elective abortions are being performed, such as, say, five weeks after conception, all the way up until the time of birth, that no biological human being is present. And then the last objection that I'm going to talk about, and has to be one of my favorites, when pro-choicers will argue, they'll say, well, the Bible doesn't say that the unborn are human beings. And this objection, like the others that were mentioned above, misses the point that is being made completely. Pro-lifers are not typically going to the scriptures to find an answer to the scientific question. They're going to the scientific disciplines that are relevant to answering the biological question. So the Bible is really not a science textbook. For example, I gave a, I did a tune-up on my Toyota Corolla a couple of weeks ago. Now, to do that tune-up, I didn't go to the Bible to figure out how to do it. I went to the motor manual, which relies on the science of chemistry and, and physics to talk about how to work on an combustion engine. So there are relevant disciplines to this. Unfortunately, the Bible is not the relevant discipline. It's not the it's not an embryology textbook. So even if the Bible is allegedly silent about the humanity of the unborn, this doesn't help the pro-choice advocate at all. After all, it's similar to asserting that since the Bible is silent on whether or not there were human beings living in North or South America during the time of biblical events, then it must follow that Native Americans are not biological human beings. And that's ridiculous. The Bible does not have to provide an answer to the question, are there human beings located in geographical position A? And it's not the purpose of the Bible, too. The Bible's purpose is to show the relationship that God has to the people here on Earth. And so the answer, we can answer the question of who counts as a member of the species, Homo sapiens, 
by doing the relevant research, whether they are located across an ocean in another continent or within the womb. And that's for the biological science. Yeah, it's always amusing to me when someone dismisses our arguments as religious. We'll, we'll make a scientific case for the unborn and they'll say, well, that's just your, your religious point of view. It's, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you thought the science of embryology was an inherently religious uh, uh, position. So it's always kind of amusing when they when they try to dismiss that. You know, as we, as we say over and over again, arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. They can either be valid or invalid or sound or unsound. And so they have to be investigated on their own merits. I was going to say that same thing. One of the best pro-life philosophers, Frank Beckwith, he told a story. He was giving a talk one time, and somebody stood up and said, oh, you're just making a religious argument. And he looked at them somewhat amused and said, well, that's good. I thought you were going to say it was making a bad argument. So mm-hmm. it is a bit humorous when people say, oh, your argument is just religious, or you're just going to the Bible to say that, or other religions dispute that. Well, some religious people used to dispute the idea that Native Americans were full human beings. That doesn't mean that we're justified in treating them as anything less. Uh, Ethnicity is not relevant to who counts as a human being, and neither is development or location. So for our final bad science objection, we're going to look at miscarriages. Some pro-abortion choice advocates appeal to the high number of miscarriages that women have as evidence that the unborn are not yet individual whole human beings. Lo and behold, Dr. Willie Parker again trots out this argument in his book, when he says, similarly, as many as one in five implanted embryos fail to thrive, resulting in miscarriage. He also states, the scientific truth, which touches every living thing in the natural world, is that in the process of life, from fertilization until death, all sorts of events can arise that interrupt maturation. All beings perish for all kinds of reasons, but that finitude does not, in every case, equal murder. So let's just suppose for a minute that miscarriages do occur frequently and then let's ask the question what follows from this how does it follow that one the unborn are not human and two we are justified in killing them well it doesn't as a counterexample many third world countries have a high infant mortality rate does it follow from that one infants are not individual whole human beings and two we are justified in killing them Well, of course not. In fact, the mortality rate for human beings is 100%. Does this mean that none of these human beings are valuable persons who have begun their existence? Um, Again, of course not. It's also important to note, as Christopher Kayser points out in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, that experts believe the high rate of embryo loss and miscarriage is the result of grave abnormalities and reproductive deficiencies in the reproductive process which results in incomplete fertilization. In other words, in the majority of cases, it could be that these are not distinct living and whole human beings which die due to miscarriage, but rather it is the woman's body expelling what it knows is not a complete product of conception. Finally, this objection regarding miscarriages confuses natural causation with agent causation. The death of unborn human beings due to miscarriage, while certainly tragic, is a result of natural causes. Something has happened within the woman's body beyond her control, which has caused the unborn to be spontaneously aborted. But abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being by a personal agent. How does it follow that because innocent human beings are killed due to natural causes, that I, as a personal agent, now have the right to deliberately kill them? 
people die of natural causes all the time, whether it be heart attack, stroke, or a catastrophic event such as an earthquake. But from the fact that people die of natural causes, it doesn't follow that terrorists are justified in using their personal agency to commit mass murder. Well, likewise, with the issue of abortion, abortion doctors or researchers are not justified in deliberately killing unborn human beings simply because some human beings die of natural causes, such as in the cases of miscarriage. I don't know if you were able to, to hear that, but I have a, a dog kind of uh, whining in the background. Uh, I'm not sure if it if it came through on the recording or not, but yeah. So if if you hear that, that's uh, that's the reason why. Um, so basically, we, we talked we about the listening audience that we might have a guest appearance of Clinton's dog. So there you <laughs> right, go. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. It it heard uh, it heard us talking about uh, dogs and cats, and uh, yeah, I guess you wanted to make her her voice known. Okay, so we talked about then the difference between philosophy and empirical research and evidence, and then we talked about several objections to the scientific case for the pro-life position. Uh, many of these are, are very common, especially if you talk to people on, on college campuses like we do, or engage people online through social media like Facebook and Twitter. You, you tend to hear these objections pretty often. So I'd just like to thank the audience now for listening, and I'd like to thank my co-hosts, uh, Nathan and Aaron, for, for joining me. If you enjoyed this conversation, uh, we, we feel that this information is very, is very valuable and, and can benefit pro-life people uh, very much. And so we would appreciate if you'd share this around to people you know, rate it and review it on our Facebook page. We'll get this up on, on iTunes as soon as possible. I've kind of hit a snag regarding, uh, regarding posting it, but I hope to get it up there very soon. Now, I have an upcoming event. If you happen to live in the Dallas, Texas area, Dallas-Fort Worth, or any of the surrounding uh, cities or towns, I'm going to be debating whether or not we have a right to die with Matt Delahunty, who's a, an internet atheist personality. And we're going to be debating that on Friday, September 8th at uh, at about 6 p.m. It might be at 7. Um, my contact told me it'll, it'll either be 6 or 7. But uh, So one of those two times, and that's going to be at the Bible and Beer Consortium in Dallas. And so I'd love to see you there if you're, if you're in the area. Now, uh, this is a, a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all of the other work that I do in the pro-life field. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of uh, donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. So if you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time donate, uh, one-time gift, or you can give a monthly gift. Just to be sure to put my name in the notes section, so the Life Training Institute knows to put your do- donation into my account. And if you'd like to uh, donate to the uh, the podcast specifically, you can indicate that in the notes as well. And donations are also tax deductible. So next week we're going to we're going to start getting into the philosophy of the pro-life position, and we're going to talk about the sled test. So uh, on behalf of uh, Nathan and Aaron and myself. We once again appreciate you for listening in and we will see you next time.